stand together to read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you will be able to find today's text on page 983 of a chairback Bible that should be nearby you. If you're new to us here at Redeemer, it is our ordinary practice a week in, a week out, to simply preach through, study books of the Bible uh, from start to finish. We're in the midst of a longish series through the book of Genesis right now, the Bible's first book, but we're taking a break this morning to turn to Colossians because today is a uniquely special day in the life of our congregation as in just a few minutes after the sermon, we'll see men ordained to the office of ruling elder or to serve as ruling elders and deacons in our church, a few others installed as ruling elders as well. So it seemed fitting to, to take a break from our our ongoing series of studies through Genesis to think specifically about what faithful ministry is according to the apostolic pattern of Scripture. And we're wanting to do that today by staring at this man named Epaphras that is mentioned multiple times in the letter to the Colossians. And so what I want to do to give us something of a context for what we're going to look at in our sermon is read verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1 and then verse 12 through 13 of chapter 4 as we're wanting to stop and stare at Epaphras' faithful ministry this morning. So let me read those verses for us and then pray that God would bless our study and we'll begin. Let's hear now as God speaks to us through his perfect word. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then verse 12 and 13 of chapter 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, in Hierapolis. And Redeemer Church, what do you know about God's Word? Let's pray together. Father, we do need the truth of your Word as a lamp and a light for our feet to guide our path as a church, as a congregation that's striving to be faithful according to your commands and instructions. God, it is a wonderful day to see new men installed to the work of gospel ministry. We take your word at its truth. It says these men soon to be installed are gifts and graces of the risen, exalted Jesus Christ as he's caring for us here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. So we pray that as we think about ministry and what it means to be faithful in our labor for the Lord, that you would help us to have eyes fixed upon the truth, hearts that are ready to repent where necessary and follow you in obedience, that faithfulness and fruitfulness might thrive in this congregation. We pray that you would help me to preach as you say I must, clearly, 
and courageously. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was sometime in the month of December, so not long ago, that one of our children had received a puzzle, either for his birthday or Christmas, and I can't remember which one. And as you would probably expect, we, we got home, and immediately he set himself to work on this puzzle in the dining room. And after about 30 minutes, I poked my head around the corner to see what kind of progress he had made in his puzzle-making endeavor. And he had made some, but not nearly as much as you might think after 30 minutes into this puzzle. And so I glanced around to see what was going on and noticed that the puzzle box was just discarded off to the side of the floor next to the table. And so I went over there, you know, put the puzzle box just right up in front of his face on the table and said, here you go, it's, it's always easier to put the thing together when you know what the picture is supposed to be. And so he began to work, and sure enough, within about 10 minutes, he had just raced through uh, the rest of the puzzle. And the reason I tell you that today is because as we're trying to put a congregational life together of faithfulness, as we're trying to fit together what it means to be faithful according to Scripture as a local church of Jesus Christ, we must know what the picture of faithfulness is of faithful leaders before we begin to put the picture together, as it were, as a congregation. Because you might know that faithful leaders are necessary for a church to be faithful. And so what we want to consider together this morning is just a simple portrait. I want to illustrate, as it were, with a a scripture pen, a picture of a man that God says is a faithful minister. So if you were to have someone ask you the question, who would you pick as a model for ministry according to scripture? I wonder who your mind would race to first. You have many good options, don't you? You, of course, have the perfect example in the Lord Jesus Christ, where we'll get to by the end of our sermon today. But what about a fallen, sinful, imperfect model of ministry, yet faithful nonetheless? Whom would you point to? Well, you could point to Abraham. We've been studying him in recent weeks. He's the friend of God. We're going to see even Lord willing next week at the end of Genesis 18 how he ministered mightily in prayer on the behalf of those whom he didn't know. Or you could turn to Exodus 33 and think about Moses, this man that the Bible says knew God face to face with such joy and such constant communion, unlike any man before him or ever since. You could maybe mention some of the kings. Hezekiah is an underrated one for faithful ministry. Or any of the apostles. Or maybe some of these ordinary ministers that often show up in Paul's letters in particular, like Titus and Timothy and maybe even Epaphroditus or Silas or Barnabas. These just ordinary, faithful men serving the Lord. My mind, for years now, has always raced in answering that question to this man named Epaphras that we find mentioned here in the book of Colossians. And the reason why I think we should congregationally race to him this morning is because of this overarching divine commendation he gets. Notice again in chapter 1 of Colossians at the end of verse 7 where Paul says he is a faithful minister. You could translate that a little differently and it's still faithful to the text. He's a faithful servant. Now here's why that's important for us. You might remember Jesus' teaching in the parables. And one of his more famous parables is the parable of the talents. And he says that there's a time coming when God, the Father, the Lord is going to give this word of affirmation to faithful servants. 
that have stewarded appropriately and wisely and diligently the gifts that he's given to them. And the affirmation is going to sound something like this, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And why Epaphras is unique is he doesn't have to wait to get that divine affirmation. He gets it already this side of heaven through the spirit-inspired pen of the apostle Paul saying he is already a faithful servant. So what we want to think about together this morning then is what exactly did faithfulness look like according to this model of ministry in this man named Epaphras because he's a man to whom we must pay attention if we understand these passages rightly and we need to pay attention for a variety of different reasons, especially on days like today. So those of you soon to be ordained or installed to the gospel ministry, what you want to recognize is this is a picture of who you must be now as an elder or deacon. Some of you know that February is nominations month here at Redeemer. Throughout the month of February, our members are nominating men, considering men for the office of deacon or the office of elder. And as you're prayerfully considering men to name, to write down, to put in a box that will be discerned and discovered in weeks and months to come. This is the kind of picture of the man you must nominate, who he must be, according to Scripture. And also, kids, it's important for you to recognize this is who church leaders must be, because there's a time coming, surely, some of you sooner than later, when you're going to become independent from your parents, and you're going to get to choose which church you go to. And we pray that you choose with wisdom and with discernment, And recognize that one of the first things you must assess about any church is the faithfulness of its leaders. If the leaders are not faithful, you have no reason to expect the congregation to be faithful according to Scripture. So it's a very significant thing that we want to do together this morning. And the way I want to walk through these verses related to Epaphras in the book of Colossians is under the theme of seven traits of faithfulness. Seven traits of faithfulness that belongs to every Faithful church leader. Seven simple things that must be true if we're going to find leaders flourishing in faithfulness. But before we get to verse 7 and begin with the first trait, let's say something about Colossians as a whole. Maybe you know the book quite well. It's quite short, four chapters long. It represents, in spite of its length or lack thereof, one of the most exalted teachings on Christ that you're going to find in in all of the Bible, some of the most beautiful foundational teachings of what we understand to be true about Jesus is found in Colossians. And the reason why is, as often happens in New Testament letters, it appears that the church there at Colossae was undergoing some sort of threat of false teaching, maybe even infected by false teachers there in the Colossian congregation that were tempting the church to think that there was this kind of mystical, spiritual fullness that they needed other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul comes along and he writes these great statements of truth of who Jesus is, what he's done, who his people must be. And what's interesting about Colossians compared to all of Paul's letters is we are almost certain, I am quite certain, that he never visited Colossae. He'd never been there before. And here's a a letter of truth to a congregation he never seen face to face. And so he asked the question, how did he know about what's going on at Colossae? How did he know what they needed to hear in spirit-inspired truth? Well, he heard about the church at Colossae through this man, Epaphras. And notice the first trait in verse 7. A faithful minister is a gospel man. 
Uh, you notice in verse 7, we kind of jump into the story, don't we, here at the letter's greetings, as it says, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So kids, you want to ask the question, you should ask questions like this, what's it, right? What did the Colossian congregation learn from Epaphras? Well, if you just kind of scan your eyes up a little bit, it's quite clear, isn't it? In verse 5, Paul's speaking about this hope that they have laid up in heaven, this heavenly hope they've heard before. In the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So do you see it? What's it? What's the word of truth? The gospel. They heard it from Epaphras. They understood it from Epaphras. They learned it from Epaphras. He's not the man that just came along preaching the gospel and departed later on. He stayed there because we think his hometown was Colossae. He stayed there laboring to instruct, to teach, to exhort the Colossian congregation not only to come to Jesus Christ, but to know him more intimately and more deeply. And we don't know a whole lot, of course, about Epaphras' life and ministry. What we know is what we're getting ready to look at in chapters 1 and 4. It does seem, however, most likely that Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, which was some 100 miles to the west of Colossae. Maybe in this hall of Tyrannus where Paul was holding something like a seminary school in the early apostolic ministry and Likely then, Epaphras was converted under Paul's preaching in Ephesus and went back home to Colossae to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to build a Christian congregation. So using our more modern terms, the right way to think of Epaphras, he's the church planter at the church in Colossae. And he's a gospel man. You learned it from him. You heard it from him. You understood this word of gospel grace. If you wanted to do something interesting later on today and turn your family lunch or friendly lunch into something of a theological exam. You could ask your neighbor across the table, hey, could you explain the gospel to me in about 60 seconds? And, you know, see what you rattle off in response. The degree to which the gospel seep down into your heart and with clarity and ease, it just comes forth. Epaphras is such a man. So students, what is the gospel? What is this truth that he is preaching and teaching and Colossae. Well, you could call on simple summary verses, particularly in the New Testament that we have related to the gospel, couldn't you? He, being Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You can answer that in 10 seconds, right? Or 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Or you could fill it in with language from Colossians. That the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that sinners are made right in Christ. And who is Christ? Well, He is the image of the invisible God. In Him all things hold together. God set Him forth as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus Christ, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he has reconciled to himself in his body of flesh, that he might present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him, that being the Father. And the Father, he has forgiven you all of your trespasses and sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against it with its legal demands, and he did that by nailing it. 
to the cross of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news of grace. That's what's effortlessly flowing from this gospel man named Epaphras. We need ministers, leaders who are gospel men, who bleed Bible. You might know that Charles Spurgeon is considered by many to be probably the greatest English speaking pastor of the 19th century. And Spurgeon, his, his historical hero, was a Puritan named John Bunyan. And if you ever read through Spurgeon's autobiography, he has all these funny quips about John Bunyan and his relationship, sometimes good or bad, with Bunyan. And one of his famous quotes that he says about Bunyan is, you prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibline. The Bible just flows from him in all of his writings. If someone was to poke you, theologically speaking, spiritually speaking, what comes out? We need faithful ministers who bleed Bible, who aren't experts in politics or procedures, BCOs or bylaws, sports or screens, but Scripture is what comes forth from them effortlessly, with fullness, with depth. Those who preach the gospel best know it best. Those who teach the gospel deeply know its depths. And this has unique application, doesn't it, to elders? The primary aptitude of elders is that they must be able to teach sound doctrine. Teach healthy gospel truth. A faithful minister, number one, is a gospel man. Number two, a faithful minister is a noble man. Look at how verse 7 continues. Just as you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. What I'm trying to underscore here is that adjective, beloved. 1 Timothy 3, doesn't it say that the elder must be respected, must have a good reputation. But it's another thing to say that he's beloved in the congregation, that he's treasured and cherished among the saints. And understand how even this one word can make all the difference in an ordinary church's life and ministry together. That yes, we're after men, of course, at an irreducible minimum who are qualified for the ministry, but we do want them to be beloved in the congregation, known by the majority, not all, church of our size, not everyone's going to know, every officer with great intimacy and depth, but overwhelmingly in the majority, cherished, treasured, Beloved, and what does that assume? Longevity of faithfulness, longevity of obedience, longevity of service, consistently, constantly serving the congregations that we can say this is a noble ministry. First Timothy 3.1, it demands noble men. First Timothy 1.5, it's a ministry whose charge is love, and it demands beloved men. To grow the church in faithfulness. So a faithful minister is number one. A gospel man. Number two. A noble man. Number three. A humble man. Just continue on in verse seven. He's our beloved fellow servant. A faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And if you just kind of switch over to chapter four verse twelve. It's so important. This servant identity of Epaphras. That Paul mentions it again. Doesn't he? In verse twelve. Epaphras who is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus. 
It was about 20 years ago that a man named Jim Collins wrote a book that became something of a phenomenon in leadership circles called Good to Great. And essentially what he was doing is looking at major successful corporations and companies and trying to discern underlying leadership characteristics consistent in each organization. And one of the ones that he brings out is what he terms level five leadership, which is just basically a modern way of speaking about a 1970 idea put forth in other leadership circles that just is emphasizing true leadership is servant leadership. That even the secular world Worldly, profitable corporations recognize that at its core, leadership is service. Now, we need to recognize that when the world is often, even in the church, the church world is often looking for better leaders. God is looking for better servants to guide the church, to shepherd the church. I think it might be helpful sometimes for us to think less about leadership and much more about servantship. Because the identity demands a degree of humility, doesn't it? We're not masters of the congregation. We're servants. It's actually even more noticeable in certain ways if you understood the original is speaking more directly about a bond slave. This reality of you're totally dependent and totally responsible to and totally accountable to a master. That you've been delegated some degree of authority. But yes, you are to serve faithfully in that. Uh, What the church needs today are not men who thrive on pride, who thrive on arrogance, who thrive on their supposed expertise, but recognize their humility before the Lord. Because understand the good that brings to a congregation. Few things in Scripture get the promises of grace like humility. So often God says, I look down on the prideful, but give grace to the humble. We have every reason to expect, I would argue then, therefore, biblically, as humility thrives, Among the church's leadership, the Spirit pours out showers of grace on that congregation. He must be a humble man, a gospel man, a noble man. Fourthly, a hopeful man. Because notice how Paul continues into verse 8. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now before you go directly to a faithful minister and a faithful ministry, it is kind of interesting in certain ways to recognize that verse 8 is the only time in the entire letter that Paul mentions explicitly the Holy Spirit. And probably it's because the unique errors and troubles that were plaguing the Colossian congregation related to the doctrine of Christ, and so we spent most of the letter on the doctrine of Christ, less on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But kids, what you want to recognize, maybe even circle in your Bibles if you have it in front of you, is that simple word, in It's a way in which Paul is telling us, Epaphras has made known to us your love that the Spirit gives. And so what the Colossian congregation is doing here early on in their life together, they've already realized Christ's perfect proof of discipleship. The world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And such love only comes from the Spirit, because notice even what he's already said in verse 4. Paul's heard about their love for all the saints. If someone was to come along and give a report about Redeemer Presbyterian Church, what would they say first? I'm not sure what they would say. You wouldn't be sure what they would say. But we can all hope that they would say their love for one another. Something that only the Spirit can provide. 
And the way in which I would want to see this as we think about a faithful minister is a hopeful man. Is that as Paul was receiving Epaphras. Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. He's in chains as he's writing this letter. Epaphras has made the journey all the way to Rome. And has delivered a report about the Colossian congregation. What has he said to Paul preeminently marks that church? The work of the Spirit. He hasn't come along and said, well, here's complaint number one that I have with my Colossian brethren. Dispute number two that I have from this week. The great struggles and failings, misgivings and failures of the congregation. That's not what he's reporting to Paul, it seems like. He's saying, yes, it's hard. We have these false teachers that are trying to infect, trying to threaten the congregation. But on the whole, this is, a, this is a church of love. And we need faithful ministers that are men of comfort before they're men of complaint. Men more prone to applaud the work of the Spirit in the life of the church than point out fingers of accusation at where people are falling short. People prone to praise God's work among His people more than protest where they are not getting it right. And that difference alone will change an entire ethos in a culture of a church. If you have faithful ministers who are ultimately optimistic, hopeful, and encouraging about the Spirit's work in the congregation. A faithful minister is a gospel man, noble, humble, hopeful, as we turn the page to chapter 4, prayerful. A prayerful man. John Welsh was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the 16th century. He was well known for quite some time after his death for a variety of different reasons in the Scottish Kirk, one of which is that he married John Knox's, one of John Knox's daughters. And so people often like to think about how John Welsh related to that great Scottish reformer. But most primarily, he's remembered as this man of consistent and, and earnest prayer. Uh, when he was a minister at the congregation of Ayr in Scotland, which was a parish of some 3,000 people, it was very common for him in his later adult life that he would always wake up in the middle of the night to pray for his congregation to such a degree that whenever, you know, the cold Scottish air was uh, coming over and seeping through the windows, he would set a blanket aside or actually on top of the bed every night before he went to sleep because he knew in just a few hours he's going to be getting up to pray and he needed a blanket to wrap around his shoulders. And so one time, you know, his wife wakes up in the middle of the night and realizes that yet again Mr. Welsh is gone. And so she finds where he is out in the cold praying for the parish, the saints there at air. And she says, Johnny, come back to bed. You're going to get sick. You're going to die of cold. And he says, my dear wife, I have 3,000 souls to care for. And I know not how it is with many of them. And I must continue praying. It's the spirit of Epaphras. Notice verse 12. Another commendation. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Yes, students, you could underline that word struggling as it's translated here in the ESV. It's the word from which we get our words of agony or agonize. That's the prayerful component of Epaphras' ministry, a ministry that is on its knees constantly, a ministry that is wrestling, that's fighting, that's in this kind of violent spiritual sense, warring with God over the realities of the saints 
in prayer. You know, we often talk about prayer warriors sometimes in certain circles of ours. And that's a good thing because that's kind of communicating what we're after here. Another way you could say the same thing is prayer wrestlers. Lord willing, we'll get there in time in Genesis 32, one of the most famous scenes of prayer in all the scripture. You know, Jacob wrestling with the angel all night long saying what? I will not let you go until you bless me. And he woke up in the morning and he called that place Peniel, which means I saw the face of God. As one old minister in the 19th century would say, we need pastors today who have Peniel written over their office because they see the face of God in their prayers. Certainly that must be true of all of our officers, that there's a noticeable, tangible, devoted commitment to prayer. Francis Schaeffer, I think it was in the 1970s, but sometime in around that era, was asked, what would happen to the American church if the Spirit left the building? You know, God's presence, the Spirit left the building. And he said, well, most American evangelical churches wouldn't even notice a difference. Put it in our circles today in 2020. If the church no longer prayed together, would anything be different? And you're not paying attention the way I'm paying attention if you don't happen to say not much would be different. How many of our churches don't pray much when they gather on the Lord's Day? How many of our PCA churches don't know a prayer meeting? And even if they have one, they're lucky to have 20% of the congregation arrive. We've forgotten what is the biblical reality of faithful ministry at the first prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. Do we often wonder why our churches lack power in the Spirit? Could it simply be as simple? We just don't pray. And stretch it further to the point of today. In part because our leaders are not praying. A faithful minister is a prayerful man. Number six, a faithful minister is a spiritual man. Here's why I say that. Look how verse 12 ends. He's struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You see that Epaphras' aim in his prayer is spiritual concerns, isn't it? Maturity in Christ, assurance in God's will. What he's realizing here in a way that you may not have seen before in Colossians is the apostolic ideal of ministry. If you just skip back to chapter 1 verse 28. Paul gives the shortest summation of what true gospel ministry is all about when he says in verse 28 of chapter 1, Him we proclaim, that's Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. The point of the ministry is to, under God, save sinners and sanctify saints. It's not concern and consumption with bigger buildings, bigger Budgets, more bodies in the seats, however wise and maybe sometimes necessary such things might be to a faithful ministry. It's maturity in Christ. It's even further this second aim of Epaphras. It's assurance in God's will. So students, consider what that might mean in a practical sense of a daily life. What does it mean to stand assured in God's will? Well, It simply means, I think, to stand assured in the truth of Jesus Christ. Because if you skip back to chapter 2, the first three verses, what you see there is Paul himself is agonizing. 
struggling for the believers there in Colossae, that their hearts might be knit together in love, that they might reach the riches of full assurance of understanding God's mystery, which is Christ. Does not every parent want their children to stand assured in the truth of Jesus Christ? Which, of course, assumes trust in Jesus Christ. That when our children leave our doors, they are able to stand firm against the winds and waves of a worldly culture that wars against the truth. We want men who are after spiritual aims, maturity in Christ, assurance in Christ, willing to spin themselves to see those realities grow in the congregation, which leads to the final point. Seventhly, a faithful minister is a sacrificial man. You see verse 13 of chapter 4. Paul says, I bear Epaphras witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He has worked hard for you. I seem to have been in seminary context in the last six or seven months to mention something, I guess, consistently enough to young seminary students where I've told them the gospel ministry is a brilliant place for lazy people to hide. Far too many can be lazy and no one knows about it. It's antithetical to the apostolic model, isn't it? He worked hard for you. Especially when you recognize the word that Paul uses here is not the normal word that he would use for work. It's actually a word that basically means pain. He's pained for you. He's been pained for you. And this is the portrait of a faithful gospel ministry. You could even add an eighth mark that a faithful minister and his ecclesiastical man, because it seems as though he hasn't just planted the church in Colossae. You'll notice the end of verse 13. He has some sort of oversight of the congregation there, Laodicea and Hierapolis. He's concerned not just for the local growth of the Colossian saints, but also the gospel in advance of the kingdom going out into the nearby regions and is willing to expend himself for the sake of the ministry. What we need are faithful men who are sacrificial ministers. And by that I mean is proper ministry is going to cause you to sacrifice something. Sacrifice of time. Sometimes you'll have to sacrifice your reputation. Sometimes you'll have to sacrifice your desires. Sometimes you have to sacrifice yourself. You don't need to be an expert in church history to know that ministry has put many a person six feet underground. And I'm one that thinks that's an okay thing. We need men who extend themselves for Christ and expend themselves for Christ that are not so expert in rest and recreation that there's no real work ever done. Churches are shrinking, saints are dying, and pastors are out doing something else. Pained and work hard for you. Not for their reputation, not for their platform, not for their notice, for the good of Christ in you. So these are seven traits of a faithful minister. It was something of a momentous week in our household. You know, you have enough kids like we have. It's a momentous week every week for some reason. And uh, this week, it was one of our kids got his first set of glasses. I've got good vision. Emily doesn't. So we figured at some point someone's going to need glasses if just the genetics work out. 
And so our second son, Owen, got his first set of glasses because he was having a hard time seeing things far away. And it's been kind of interesting the last couple of days that he's been wearing these things is that which used to be blurry. And of course, we really didn't realize was blurry. Uh, now it's like suddenly clear to him. There's just like this clarity of, oh, I didn't know it looked that way. Oh, I didn't know it appeared that way. And I do hope there's a sense in which as we evaluate Epaphras, we start to see faithful ministry come into greater clarity. Like it is this simple, but it is this significant. A gospel man, a noble man, a humble man, a hopeful man, a prayerful man, a spiritual man, a sacrificial man. That's the kind of faithful leaders that we need. So to make sure that it's clear enough for us here at the end, let me see if I can bring things together in two closing comments, speaking in two different directions for what's going on in the life of our church even today. First of all, we need men who show progress in Christ. And I'm thinking here specifically of those of you who are about to do the work of prayerfully considering nominating men for the office of elder or the office of deacon. We need men who show progress in Christ Jesus. The office is not a place to nominate a man for hoping he will learn progress in it, if that makes sense. He will, but he should have already manifested progress along the way that's evident to all. It again assumes a longevity of obedience, a longevity of service, a longevity of faithfulness. Obvious progression in teaching, obvious progression in prayer, obviously, obvious progression in humility, obvious progression in service. These are the kinds of things we want to be assessing and looking and praying that God would well up into the life of our congregation here at Redeemer. We need men who show progress in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we need men who serve in the pattern of Christ Jesus. And there I'm speaking specifically of those about to be ordained and installed. Clearly, the congregation has deemed these six men that you're about ready to see as ones who have shown qualified, demonstrable progress in Christ. And my exhortation to you, brothers, is now continue to serve in the pattern of Jesus Christ. Because Paul often says, or at least a few times in his letters, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us that ministers, elders in particular, are to be models exemplars of love for Christ. You're, you're supposed to want to imitate them. Imitate them insofar as they imitate Jesus Christ because at the root of it, isn't it true, when we talk about faithful ministry, we always get back to the faithful minister himself. We read it earlier from Hebrews chapter 8 that Christ is our faithful minister. In the heavenly places, pouring out gifts upon his church that they might minister in his power and after his pattern. For surely we would always want to say, wouldn't we? Jesus Christ is a gospel man, came preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom. Oh, he was noble and beloved. He was humble, came not to be served, but to serve. He was hopeful. He is Still prayerful for his people, his ongoing mediation and intercession for them. Of course, totally consumed with spiritual aims, the fruits of his character forming themselves into the life of the congregation. And he is the ultimate sacrificial minister who gladly and freely gave of his life that saints might be redeemed and renewed after his own image. 
So we need men who show progress in Christ. Men who serve in the pattern of Christ. Such are faithful men. Such faithful ministers will help us continue to grow in faithfulness as a congregation here at Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we do confess before you our weaknesses and failings. Uh, Whenever we do think of faithfulness, we're quickly reminded of our faithlessness, and we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, who covers our sin, who ministers to us by his word and spirit, that we might increase in his likeness, that we might abound in thankfulness. And we pray that you would even help us now as we continue on even this day in the life of our congregation, a special day of ordination and installation, that you would equip us, that you would fit us for everything that we need in Christ Jesus, that we might be found faithful at the last day and hear those sweet words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.